Welcome to Embargo, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I am here with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Timothy O'Toole. What is up, Tim? What is up, Brian? Good to be here. Good to be here. Lots of exciting, quick stuff Lots today. of exciting. Lightning. Yeah, kind of, kind of a quasi-lightning round episode that we're going to go through today. Uh, very happy to be here with you. We're recording on a Friday afternoon, uh, Friday, February 11. Some interesting late-breaking events that have affected our our topic list today. Uh, so we're excited to, to jump into that in just a moment. Before we do, the normal introductory notes, we are not giving legal advice. We are not sharing any confidential information. And all views that you hear on this program are mine and Tim's. If you do not like them, blame us. Do not blame anyone else. Uh, if you like the pod, please spread the word. Uh, please subscribe. You can get us. Uh, you can hear us anywhere you get your pod content. Uh, and we are here every two weeks. Thank you for joining, as always. Uh, thanks to everyone who we heard from after the last episode. We got a, we got a little more Russia content. We've been Russia heavy this calendar year. We got more Russia content, but late breaking news has bumped Russia back in our, um, in our agenda a little bit. So we are going to start today with the the pretty big news uh, relating to Afghanistan and. The new executive order that was just issued today relating to the funds that are um, in the U.S. that are from the Afghanistan uh, Central Bank. So we're going to start there. We're going to check in on JCPOA 2.0 and um, lay some bets as to what we think is coming here in the in the final, perhaps the final stretch of the negotiations on that. We're going to then get to Russia and talk about Russia and their new BFF. China. Um, and then that is going to pave the way for more China content through the end of the program. We're going to talk about the uh, Hytera indictment that just came down um, a couple days ago. And then we're going to end with an interesting China-related CFIUS um, case that um, just made the news recently. Uh, we're going to talk about that to wrap things up. So um, like I said, we're going to we're going to keep this relatively streamlined today. We're not going to do it's not technically a lightning round episode. We have no lightning round today. Um, so please don't don't add us if you're big fans of the lightning round. We're going to keep this pretty streamlined, though. We're going to go sort of one central question per topic. And uh, and that's our that's going to be our episode for today. Tim, before we get started, any any thoughts, any I thought we were going to have I thought this was going to be the happy hour edition because we're doing this late on a Friday. What really? happened? I, you know, we blew that. The, ca- blew that. the caterers, the caterers really <laughs> dropped the ball on that. I think, um, and you can you can add us if you'd like the like <laughs> miss it. I mean, we we can we can probably handle we can that. probably handle that. We're big bo- we're big boys. We can handle that. But um, without any further delay, let's jump into it. So, topic number one, late breaking. As I said, um, Afghanistan. So we were planning to touch base and talk about Afghanistan a bit today, anyway, because there were some developments in late December and recently with uh, some issuance of some new general licenses and a number of new FAQs and guidance relating to mostly humanitarian aid to Afghanistan and dealings with the Taliban and and the like and things that we have talked about quite a bit before and that are weighing heavily on um, any uh, sort of interactions with the country at the moment, but that has been superseded somewhat by what happened today, which is the issuance of a new executive order relating to the funds that are being held in the United States um, on behalf of the Central Bank of Afghanistan. Um, 
And so we're going to talk about that instead. DAB, as it is known. And so this this executive order literally just got um, released within the last few hours. And essentially, for anybody who hasn't seen this, um, it is it blocks it it sort of explicitly blocks all of the funds that are held in the United States um, that are um, that are the property of the central bank of Afghanistan. And then it directs the U.S. financial institutions who hold those funds to take certain actions, uh, namely to consolidate and transfer all of those funds to an account held at the Federal Reserve Bank in New York. And um, the other big news that is coming with this that has been now touted in certain uh, public statements from the administration and also reported on, I believe, first in the New York Times, we will give them credit. Um, the plan for these funds is that there's approximately or somewhere in excess of $7 billion in funds that are held um, that are the property of the uh, DAB, the central bank in the U.S. And those are to be um, essentially jointly carved up, half of which will be going toward humanitarian aid in Afghanistan, half of which will be available uh to um, litigants in 9-11 related litigation in the U.S. who have um, won judgments against the Taliban for their support of terrorism and have outstanding um, unsatisfied judgments against them. Uh, and there, and has that has recently been a topic of a lot of action in the court system in recent months. Um, and uh, so that is what has now been proposed as the way forward for these funds after many, many months of debate as to what should happen. Um, the Taliban, of course, made a claim to these funds and said, well, we're the rightful government of, of Afghanistan and we should give us our $7 billion. And not surprisingly, that's not, um, that's not what happened. But I think the question that I want to tee up for you, Tim, is... Um, a broad one. What do we make of all this? And do we think this is going to work as planned? Or do we think that this is now, uh, we're now about to sort of go through um, the looking glass a little bit with respect to these funds and how they're planning to be used? Because obviously, there's a lot of complexity in terms of how this will work, um, both in terms of what the, you know, the portion of the funds that could be used for um, to satisfy these judgments in the US, and of course, um, trying to actually route the funds successfully to um, to humanitarian causes in Afghanistan and avoid the um, intervention of the Taliban in doing that. So, what do we think? What do we think we're going to see next? And how? What do you make of this generally as a resolution to this kind of pretty pretty thorny problem that has been lingering for the past several months? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I. I it's it's not a traditional sanction that we like to talk about where you have kind of enforcement risks and and kind of priorities and and you have to figure out like who's really in the line of fire and what does it mean i mean here there's a pot of money uh it's in the us um the us is going to be i think i predict that the money will be transferred to the fed successfully so that part of the program is going to work um That's a i bold think that prediction Oh, it's, yeah. I, I, you know, I like to go out on a limb. Um, but I think that, and then the second part of it, you know, has two pieces. One is the money that's going to go to the um, 9-11 victims. I think that's going to, that, that piece will work as well. 
the take, question that's is going to take some time, obviously. And that's well, be, it'll definitely take some time, and how you divide yeah. it up, and and who has a claim to it. That's that's definitely going to take some time, but that'll be manageable. I mean, I, my understanding is that that's been done already with respect to some funds with respect to the 9/11 victims, um, and there are similar programs with respect to um, money that is is been confiscated to be used to the, to what the US government would call the the victims of the Iranian government and so so like those programs have a have some traction and they're entirely within the control of US actors and so again i think it'll probably work um it's the piece in terms of getting humanitarian aid to afghanistan i mean that piece is going to require transfers that the taliban touches at some point or potentially touches at some point there are general licenses that allow for that but as we know um once you have to start moving money across international lines into sanctioned heavily sanctioned areas or to areas that are governed by a sanctioned government it becomes just much more tricky and so i think you'll probably see the same sort of problems that we see with humanitarian aid in sanctioned countries, maybe this is a way to streamline it. I mean, the money is actually going to be coming from the U.S. government. Maybe banks will trust those sorts of transfers more than they will trust transfers from private actors that that try to move through the financial system despite the the presence of, of sanctions issues. I mean, again, what we're talking about is money that should smoothly move through the financial system in theory, but in, in practice doesn't. So maybe having the U.S. government involved will make it a little easier or maybe it won't. I guess we'll see with that. But that's the part of the program that I think is still whether it'll work is up for grads. The rest I feel pretty confident in my prediction. Yeah, I think that they will. Work. I think the 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 only additional point that I would throw on top of that, which is more or less what we were going to cover anyway with respect to Afghanistan before uh, this all came about today, is that big question of whether or not the relevant financial institutions who are going to have to be relied upon to some degree to get this money from point A to point B in Afghanistan and to the groups that will be able to deploy it in Afghanistan are going to be willing to take comfort in this action and the related assurances and guidance and authorities that the U.S. has put in place to try to facilitate that, right? Obviously, we know there are now a host of general licenses and FAQs and other things that are designed to help facilitate the more or less the free flow of humanitarian aid to Afghanistan, to the people of Afghanistan. And we know, we know directly from the, com the questions and the issues that we run into on behalf of our clients that there are still a lot of problems and a lot of delays and a lot of questions and a lot of fears about being able to do that. And, and I think that this speaks, I think this is going to, again, we said this, I think at the outset, right after the, the fall of Afghanistan last year, but I think this is now we're really getting to kind of rubber meets the road time. Now that these funds are going to be freed up. This is a fascinating test case to see if the U S government and if OFAC can really change the behavior and the calculus of how the financial infrastructure globally thinks about these things and whether or not they can really be used in an effective way. And I say effective, meaning, you know, hopefully not holding these things up endlessly such that, you know, uh, compliance considerations outweigh the, um, the needs of, you know, the people who are suffering on the ground in Afghanistan uh, to a, the point where it basically, you know, undercuts the entire purpose of this exercise. 
um, whether that can really be achieved. And I think, and, and to the administrations, you know, it's to a person, the administration has said that as their goal to not, um, to, to not, uh, to do everything they can to ease that suffering of the Afghan people and to, to get aid to the people who need it. Uh, we, we shall see. I mean, I think it's, it, this is, we're about to see and the infrastructure around that and all of the related to Tim's point, this isn't a traditional topic, but this is so embedded with sort of how the sanctions and AML, um, compliance infrastructure works globally. It, it is going to be interesting to see if, if this is a, this is truly a path to achieve this, this identified goal or whether we're going to be mired in the same kinds of, um, you know, compliance, uh, sort of, you know, stuck in the mud considerations that we see in many other contexts, uh, even with all of these things in place to, to potentially alleviate that. So I, we just wanted to sort of tee this one up. Obviously this is brand new, you know, we'll have additional conversation on this, but I don't know if you have any final thoughts, but just real quick. I mean, if it works, maybe it'll become a model. Maybe. I mean, there are a lot of sanctioned countries where the governments have money that is in, you know, frozen pots that the U.S. would potentially have access to. And if the U.S. government decides this worked well with Afghanistan, nothing would really stop it from from trying to go seize money from Iran or Venezuela or countries that are under sanctioned and decide that the U.S. government would do a better job of getting humanitarian aid to the people than either the government that's in place or, or NGOs. Yeah, no, agreed. Obviously, complicated issues perhaps um, relating to you know, whether it's kind of as a policy matter wise for the U.S. to kind of unilaterally act to do that with respect to another government's um, money. But here, I think that seems not to be as much a concern, given uh, that the Taliban is, is um, you know, entrenched, at least for the moment in Afghanistan. So in, in all events, um, that we'll leave that one behind, but wanted to start with that. Um, as that is an issue that I know has been uh, a lot of good folks in the U.S. government, including some we know very well, have been working hard on that uh, in recent months. And um, so a bit of a an, an inflection point there, and we will see where we go from there. With that, let's move on to another one of our favorite topics, which is JCPOA 2.0. Um, so... So this one really will be a lightning round as opposed to the earlier topic, which was a big topic because it came out today. So so we weren't planning on it. But this is Iran. We talk about it most episodes um, and we kind of give our our biweekly prediction or biweekly observation of where things stand um, in the in in connection with the JCPOA talks. And we're basically where we were the last time, which is we're near the end of these uh, of the window in which these talks have the possibility to be successful. I think the only thing that I would add here, because that's something that the U.S. government has said, you know, it said before the last episode of the podcast, it has said since the last episode of the podcast, it is repeating that time is short, time is short. Uh, the the thing that I think we're seeing now that that reinforces that message is that the Senate is also starting to repeat and just and these are you know senators from both sides of the aisle repeating that time is short for the potential for an Iran deal for a lot of the reasons that we've talked about because um, you know the the Iran deal as written was scheduled to start expiring in 2025 that was a critique of the Iran deal the the more the closer we get to that date, the the sanctions, the 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 sort of nuclear um, restraints that Iran puts into place um, become less and less valuable, uh, and so so you know as time 
passes the chances that the U.S. would give up sanctions or provide sanctions relief in exchange for less and less valuable um, nuclear restraint by Iran, I think becomes a lot less. The one thing that I would add to that, though, is the articles that I'm seeing uh, repeat that we are in a crisis in Iran because Iran has gotten much, much closer to being able to make a nuclear weapon by some reports is very, very close, even weeks away, when during the JCPOA, the thinking was that it was years away. And so um, the the current strategy clearly has gotten Iran very close to a nuclear weapon. And so uh, the, the, the question is, is there another strategy that will at least keep it away for years? Because right now, the, the, the US trade policy has gotten Iran within weeks of a nuclear weapon. And so we can probably do better than that in JCPOA. 2.0, however it looks, will probably do better than that. So that's that's really where I think things stand. It's not that much different than last week, but I think time really is running out and the pressure is starting to build. Um, if it's now or now. So I'm gonna play the I'm gonna play the devil's advocate in the side of the doomsday clock here and say that I think we may be past the point of no return where where a deal might not be possible. And you know, those who are perhaps tired of hearing us talk about this, one of the reasons that we talk about it all the time is that we continue to get questions on a regular basis to forecast what may be happening. And we know that companies, especially in certain parts of the world, Europe in particular, are very, very interested in this because they would be interested in potentially getting back into Iran in the event there is a deal. So we are thinking about and talking about this still on a pretty regular basis. I do think given where things stand in terms and the latest intel and the latest reporting on sort of where things are with regard to the uh, enrichment of materials to make a nuclear weapon in Iran are pretty dire and suggest that we may very well be past the point of no return. Uh, And, uh, you know, I I just can't really see what brings us out of this uh, at this point. So I'm going to stick with I'm staying, I declared, we declared JCPOA 2.0 dead at the end of 2021. I know there's a lot of, well, maybe not, things look good. There's some people who are trying to, you know, uh, tout an optimistic uh, outcome here. I'm sticking with, I'm sticking with it's dead. <laughs> that's, so that's, you're, you're taking, you're taking the under. I'm taking the is under. Given that we're coming right. up on Super Bowl weekend here in the U.S., I'm taking the under, Tim's taking the over. Uh, the point spread is is getting larger by the day. I feel like this is like more, the, a, getting a deal done is more of an underdog than ever. I think right now, so I'm sticking with the uh, I'm sticking with the under. Uh, you know, at some point we will presumably have a concrete discussion about this on the podcast when it is really dead or really coming back into play. But for now, um, you know, we do feel somewhat duty bound to continue to come back to this, at least briefly. To, to it, if it, it happens, it's such a big right. deal that it's worth right. continuing to talk about. And if it doesn't happen, you know, it, it still is taking up a lot of U.S. government time yes. trying to bring it back into play. And look, I'm, I'm probably on the less than 50 percent side, too, but I'm close to 50 percent. And the reason is because the deal would be so much better than the status quo, which is is also very dangerous. But I also get that there's lots of pressures that that will push us away from any sort of deal. And they're probably getting going to get stronger as opposed to weaker. Yep. All right. Well, that's all we wanted to say about JCPOA 2.0 for this week. Uh, with that, we will move on to, of course, Russia and China and China in, uh, as a couple, 
BFFs, I referred to them uh, at the beginning of the of the episode. Uh, and then we're going to segue into a lot of China content to bring us to bring us home today. So the we've obviously talked about Russia quite a bit in the last several episodes. And what what I really want to frame for us is the following question, which was reported on. We have touched upon previously and which was reported upon um, quite a bit in the last week or so on the heels of two things, the opening ceremonies of the Olympics in Beijing and uh, President Putin's visit to China to coincide with that, along with many other world leaders, not, of course, the U.S. because of the diplomatic boycott and coming out of the the meetings that uh, President Putin had um, uh, in China around the beginning of the Olympics, many reports of understandings and deals for oil and gas related projects, many, many billions of dollars of um, deals that had been agreed to and arrangements that had been struck during those talks and in conjunction with many other talks that are ongoing. And of course, the natural takeaway from this is that Russia is trying to signal to the US and to Europe that it is impervious to whatever the sanctions they may levy if and when Russia decides to invade Ukraine. So, and by the way, just today, the US government has issued a warning to American citizens in Kiev and in Ukraine to basically evacuate because a Russian invasion could come at any time. So that's where we still stand is on the precipice of a potential invasion. And then all of the consequences and the sanctions and the other measures that we've talked about in the last couple episodes. What I want to ask you, Mr. Tool, is the following. Will the U.S., let's, let's assume that Russia invades, let's assume the U.S. imposes some crushing sanctions as it is uh, warned that it will, and the EU backs that up at least to some degree, and China steps in to fill the void for its good pal, Russia. And uh, they say, don't worry, we will sell you and we will consume whatever it is that you have to sell. It, it's, it's, all, it's all good, Vlad, we're, we're, we're here for you. And they step into the void and they at least help to uh, you know, ameliorate the consequences of the crushing sanctions that the US, EU, and others may impose on Russia. What would it take, or, or let, me, let me phrase it in two ways, would the U.S. ever have a stomach to come after China for blatantly disregarding and and most likely violating or at least putting themselves in jeopardy of being subject to secondary sanctions as a result of its actions to continue doing business with, with Russia? Um, would the U.S. ever have stomach for that? And if it would, what would, what would that look like? What do you think would it, would it take to incense the U.S. to a point that it would actually call China's bluff. Because as we know, China has essentially given the U.S. the middle finger with respect to Iran, with respect to North Korea, and with respect to any real threat of major sanctions enforcement or or action that could really harm China or the Chinese economy in a major way. So what would it take and would the U.S. ever have a stomach to go after China with respect to Russia? Would that be the tipping point? Well, I, I guess I'll, I'll start by saying, as in Iran, I, I think we are just at the point of uh, where we're going to find out soon, one way or the other, because um, my understanding is that 
Ukraine's winters are sufficiently cold that right now the Russian tanks could drive over the entire country because all the rivers are frozen. That's that will end in a you know couple, matter of weeks, as I understand it. And so Russia's either going to invade or they're not. And so the, then the next phase would kick in. And hopefully the answer is not. But um, if the answer were yes, the U.S. would impose what they've called crushing sanctions. Russia really has one major. Um, sector in its economy, a couple others, but energy is by far their biggest sector. Um, and so the U.S. sanctions would be designed to cripple the Russian energy sector. China needs energy. China is our competitor. China is not anxious to uphold whatever the U.S. is doing, although I, I, I will say I'm not sure China's crazy about an aggressive Russian army that it shares a border with running around trying to just kind of invade sovereign countries, but I, I, it doesn't look like those tanks are headed China's way anytime soon. So China may not may still be willing to play ball and has indicated that it will play ball and start buying sanctioned energy. The U.S. response, um, you know, you'd have to see what China's doing. But the U.S., what, I will say after President Trump withdrew the U.S. from the JCPOA, the, the U.S. did start to come after China when it was buying Iranian oil. Now, that stopped in the Trump administration, and that pause has at least continued for now in the Biden administration, um, in part because of the, the negotiations in Vienna. And there is a threat to re, reimpose them if if the talks break down. But I think you'd see the same process in, in China. I, I, I think the U.S. would probably pick a fight if China does what it has suggested it will do in these other articles. And the fight would look like secondary sanctions, um, you know, putting on the SDN list big Chinese purchasers of Russian oil, including state-owned entities that do that. I mean, we've seen it with Huawei. We've seen it with ZTE. I think the U.S. knows how to go after China with sanctions. The question is, is this the breaking point? Like, is this where the rest of where the world splits into two with respect to financial institutions? And there's a Chinese side, Chinese-Russian side, and Iran and some of the other countries are probably going to fall in that bucket. Or do we stay kind of in the same boat we are now where when the U.S. sanctions, it imposes great consequences because nobody can break away from the U.S. financial but, system? But here's my question or my follow-on comment to that, which is, yes, the U.S. did go after certain Chinese interests with respect to what they were doing vis-a-vis -vis Iran, but arguably it was understood that that was not going to make, that was not going to really have a deterrent effect. It was more of a symbolic gesture to to sort of say you can't just uh, flagrantly violate the sanctions and uh, no consequences will come. And if there was really truly the desire to deter further mischief on behalf of China with respect to Iran, or certainly now in the coming months, perhaps with respect to Russia, there could be a much bigger, more comprehensive push and response that would really impose some pain if 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 the US wish to do that let's let's i don't know that we would sort of consider it a maybe it's maximum pressure light or something along those lines where you could see whether it's big um players big entities in china as you mentioned in those industries whether it's big big sectors whether you know there's all kinds of ways that it could it could come about but i think the question of um what that could look like and whether or not um, again, we there are all kinds of ways that we discuss this on a regular basis in terms of what do you need to be worrying about with respect to China if you have exposure there, whether it's your supply chain, customer base, operations, whatever. But this is a really 
this is another really interesting wrinkle here, which is could could this really to your point, I think, could this signal a new era where, um, you know, they have now sort of so firmly uh, aligned themselves with kind of the rogue nations of the world and the U.S. enemies that there's just no there's just kind of no getting past that. And the U.S. feels that it has no choice but to act um, strongly and swiftly to try to deter that. I would also say Another related point is, and I've seen this commented upon in a number of different circles by knowledgeable observers, China may very well be watching how this all plays out with respect to Russia and Ukraine so that they can say, huh, Taiwan's looking pretty pretty, uh, pretty vulnerable there. And if we go take Taiwan, what is the U.S. really going to do? Like, or what are we, what are the consequences of that really going to be? And this may be a little bit of a, you know, a test balloon for China to see what the U.S. is willing to do and what other um, U.S. allies are willing to do and understand, and then perhaps be able to better approximate what the cost of their potential invasion of Taiwan might be. And so, you know, this is hugely complicated from that standpoint. And I think the U.S. will have to be thinking somewhat along those lines as well in terms of anything that they formulate that's going to be designed to hit China with respect to what it's doing on Russia. Yeah, I mean, it's going to get messy if that's what all that happens, because, you know, even Russia is a big country for the U.S. to try and take on with sanctions. And obviously, the Chinese economy is multiples bigger than than Russia. And so if if China sides with Russia on this, so essentially we've got to take the fight from Russia to China, the, the ability of U.S. sanctions to do that is is limited. It's going to be even more limited if if the if Western Europe is is not united in in going after that as well because China I think you know has seen over the last five years or so kind of it's been able to envision what a world would look like in which the U.S. and Chinese economies are more disentangled than they are right now. I, I don't think China has really thought through what the world would look like if it was basically split in two and you had the US and Europe on one side and Russia and the rogue or China and the rogue states on the other side um and so whether you know western western Europe whether the the NATO allies really stick with those that sort of policy if the US got tough on China would be one question and then the other question i think you're exactly right to to raise this is if we if we try and fail <laughs> What do we what do we say to China when they start saying, okay, we're going into Taiwan? We'll start telling them we're going to come after you with massive sanctions, and their response is going to be, oh, like the massive yeah. sanctions you came after us with the last they'll time. Yeah, they'll shrug. Yeah, they'll shrug and they'll and they'll ignore because yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think your point about what Europe and the NATO allies will do is a good one because certainly with respect to Russia right now, the the, the Everybody seems to be roughly aligned, although there's not perfect alignment between the U.S. and, and the NATO allies. But with China, the U.S. has largely been not not exactly going it alone, but way, way more aggressive and way out in front of anything that other kind of lesser economies and lesser global powers have been willing to do because they just don't want to incur the wrath of China. And so I think that is that remains a very real obstacle to have any kind of multilateral pressure on China unless or until there's something, some real outlier, completely unanticipated type action that they take that perhaps is a, you know, puts us at a point of no return. But but I but I can't even. Germany. Yeah, go ahead. 
Germany won't even commit <laughs> to sanctioning Nord Stream 2 right. as to Russia if Russia actually goes in and invades and takes over the entire country of Ukraine. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't so, bode well. doesn't bode well. So the idea that, the, that, that Germany would then have the stomach to not only, you know, hold firm on Russian sanctions, but then if China, you know, provides support to Russia in evading the sanctions, to then kind of jump on board and join the, the sanction train with respect to China seems a bit far-fetched. Maybe it'll happen. But if it doesn't happen that creates problems in its own right for the US because then does it start to sanction Germany? I mean, like it really it really becomes very difficult yeah. um, to see how this plays out if the US doesn't keep the allies on board, but it also becomes very difficult to see how this plays out if China sides with Russia and then the allies, at least some of them split off from the US in terms of sanctions, like where does the US go from there? It just gets really messy really quick. Yeah, agreed. So anyway, that is, for this week, that's that's our that's our Russia that's our Russia um, discussion. Obviously, we'll be back on this before too long, but I think that's a real fascinating angle that we've we've kind of you know hinted at previously and wanted to consider and talk through in a bit more depth because th- that is as Tim said, this is going to get really mu- really messy, and th- this aspect of it is is one of the messiest. And so, uh, you know, what that means and what things will look like six months or a year from now is just really hard to predict, and could be really really disruptive to the way that um, folks have organized themselves and their businesses and their compliance assumptions and all kinds of things. So this is the type of thing that we're talking about with our clients more and more, and people should be thinking about if they're not already. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the idea of a shooting war essentially spilling over into a new trade war is, is not talked about that much. I mean, the, the, the talk has really been what will happen with respect to Russia sanctions, but I, it, it could get much bigger very quickly if, if all the dominoes start to fall that we've talked yeah, about. Yeah, the ripples, the ripples here no no bounds, I think. So uh, in any event, we'll leave that for now, but we're going to stay with China and we're actually going to pivot back to our last two topics for today are, are sort of of a piece with the DOJ China initiative discussion that we had the last time, because I think these would both comfortably fall to some degree within the scope of that initiative. And, and so I'm going to uh, flip it to Tim to to introduce uh, a fascinating sort of new indictment that just came down the other day and, and what that might mean. Well, one of the big issues that's always been involved in in trade talks and in in trade disputes between the U.S. and China has been the U.S. view that that uh, China, the Chinese government and Chinese companies are trying to steal U.S. technology. And so, um, with that in mind, um, we're going to talk quickly about an indictment that came down in Chicago, in federal court in Chicago, uh, earlier this week, in which a company called Hytera Communications. Um, was charged with a 21-count indictment. Now, I, I've taken a look at the indictment, and there are plenty of other individuals who are likely to be charged as well. Uh, those that, 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 at least on the version that I saw, was still redacted as to who they're going to go after. But the indictment was based on what uh, is alleged, Hytera is alleged to have hired uh, employees 
to then go uh, work for Motorola Solutions and, and steal uh, proprietary technology with respect to communications. So walkie-talkie and radio technology, it's called DMR technology, um, and essentially use their positions at Motorola to get into the company database and access the trade secrets that it can then pass on to Hytera. That's the gist of the indictment. Um, so, so, you know, I guess a, a pretty big uh, example, I think we're talking about uh, potentially hundreds of millions of dollars worth of this stuff. And the reason that I take that number, um, or the, the, the place that I get that number from, is that there was a civil suit in which many of these allegations were aired, in which uh, Motorola sued Hytera and won. And this criminal case apparently stems from the, the um, civil suit. These, this conduct apparently continued up through 2020, so it's relatively recent, although it dates back to, to 2007, so it's been going on for a long time. Um, I think this is a, a good example of you know, DOJ's China initiative playing out in other parts of the country. We see the indictment in Chicago. It's not an SDNY indictment. Um, it's a, it's going after one of what the U.S. would say is the key issues in, in the dispute, and it seems to be a pretty ex egregious example of that, um, at least based on the indictment. Obviously, an indictment is just a charge, but uh, this has also been the subject of a civil case, and so there appears to be some fact development that's been done, maybe considerable fact development that's been, been done before the indictment. So uh, the case is off the ground and on the way and worth watching. Yeah, it's just a, a couple of additional comments. So for for folks who are so I worked on a number of these theft of trade secret cases and economic espionage cases when I was at DOJ and there was typically this is a good illustration of the what happens many times which is there is a a private civil litigation that is launched by the victim company here Motorola to try to make themselves whole for what they allege were the you know theft of their proprietary information, trade secrets, sensitive technology. And obviously here they've already prevailed and they've already prevailed to a tune of already, you know, over half a billion dollars in damages. So quite a bit, but nevertheless, to Tim's point, I think this, this kind of action is kind of core to what the GOJ China initiative was really envisioned to be, which is a surging of resources and a highlighting of the risks of this type of action by Chinese companies, by by the Chinese government, uh, to go after this valuable U.S. IP, trade secret, control technology, etc. And so, you know, there aren't that many of the, these are difficult and usually uh, arduous cases to investigate and to charge and um, to bring, but obviously this indictment is actually was under seal for quite a while and was just unsealed. So it was charged last year and just unsealed uh, within the past few days. So, um, you know, sort of an interesting wrinkle here that they have unsealed when they did and that they did decide to make a decision to bring a follow on criminal indictment when there was already a remedy, so to speak, for the victim company because they had already um, succeeded in their civil litigation. But I think important from a deterrent standpoint and from a uh, policy, you know, sort of a via law enforcement policymaking, um, you know, tool to bring cases like this. And so I think this is a really good and very high profile example of that. And I think all the more so because Hytera, for those who pay attention to this, they're, they're a name that's been out in the public domain, not just in connection with this lawsuit 
that predates the indictment and the um uh it they were named as a an entity in the section 889 of the fiscal year 2019 ndaa which for folks in the government contract space know very well and tim and i deal with this as well uh huawei zte and a few other chinese companies very high profile chinese communications companies that were um that were named there and that that has very real and significant consequences for government contractors in the U.S. Um, so Hytera was part of that group of companies. And then the FCC similarly named them as a as a, um, an entity that raised national security concerns. Uh, I believe that came out in early 2021 as well. So they've been on the radar as kind of a national security threat, if you will, for quite some time in the in the sort of telecom space. Um, and with respect to controlled technologies, sensitive technologies, access to government information, et cetera. So it, it makes sense as a rounding out of the U.S. government strategy that they would go after a company like Hytera and indict and try to, um, and, and also, as Tim mentioned, clearly some other individuals have already been indicted, additional in, that are still under seal, some other individuals that maybe are still being investigated could be charged in the future. So, you know, a pretty splashy pretty big impact trade secret theft case as these things go there are not that many of these they they only you know huawei is charged with theft of trade secrets not in um in one of the pending indictments against them there are not that many that are out there these are again hard cases to to investigate and charge so i think notable from that perspective and and ties into many of the other sort of thematic threads that we have talked about that we we talked about on a regular basis but that we were just talking about in particular last week with respect to doj's china initiative and i do think that to the extent that that lives on or that the core principles or the core objectives of that live on as we discussed last week this is the type of thing you will see more so than our non-traditional collector MIT professor type cases. It was these types of cases. So, um, so I think notable from that perspective as well that uh, this one gets unveiled shortly on the heels of of that of that uh, dismissal in the other case that we talked about in the last episode. Now, this this sort of case makes sense in the China Initiative. Um, you know, it, it it is directed at China, but it's directed at a at a real harm that is something that the U.S. government's been talking about for years. Yep, agreed. So. Um, that's all we really wanted to cover on that one. We'll, you know, there, there could be some more, uh, follow on as this case moves along, we shall see what happens with it, but, um, just wanted to call that to everyone's attention since it, um, it just got again, unsealed and publicized just very recently. Um, so moving along now to our final topic, we are, we are flying, um, no pun intended with the uh, with our last topic. Um, we're going to talk now about a CFIUS matter, Icon involving Icon aircraft, um, and this is a shout out to the Wall Street Journal for some really good reporting on this. So if if those of you who have not seen this, we would encourage you to go to the to the to the journal to to read up on this. They've they've covered this um, matter a, a few times recently, but there was a, a particularly a really good article just a couple of days ago that really kind of lifted the curtain on what's going on here. And essentially, the setup is um, Icon Aircraft is a U.S. company that makes small amphibious planes with foldable wings, and it's marketed just for recreational use. Now. They have, for a number of years, had some Chinese investors. And what has apparently happened, according to the journal report, is that the U.S. investors and U.S. executives at the company, 
uh, including, I believe, one of the founders, um, have grown somewhat disgruntled by the the actions of the Chinese investors, in part because they claim that the Chinese investors have tried to whisk away the proprietary technology uh, and take it back to China and use it for who knows what. But one could imagine that the U.S. government would see this as perhaps an example of exactly the phenomenon we're talking about in the Hytera case and also more broadly the phenomenon that we see with respect to BIS entity listings and other actions taken by the Commerce Department and others to prevent the civil military fusion um, efforts of the Chinese government to take civilian uh, technology and build upon that to use it to their military advantage. And so what has come out in this article or what is reported in the article is that the um, some of the U.S. investors have claimed that uh, this technology that is, was trying to be um, either expropriated or licensed, depending on who you believe, by the Chinese investors and taken back to China, actually does have military applications and actually is the subject of ongoing um, projects by the DoD and others in the government to see whether that could be um, whether that could be militarized. This this uh, technology could be militarized. So um, so hold that thought for a moment because what they did was essentially uh, they they then could not prevail upon their Chinese investors to to stop with their licensing efforts or their expropriation efforts or their tech transfer efforts. And so what they did was they threatened to take the matter to CFIUS, and they did. They essentially reported themselves to CFIUS and said, CFIUS, you need to get involved here and stop this from happening, which is what is most notable, I think, about this, because we don't see this. We really do not see this, because once a U.S. investor or anybody takes a matter to CFIUS and may, puts it in, to their attention, and now reportedly the, the matter is in fact being um, being reviewed and perhaps investigated by CFIUS at the moment as to whether or not they are going to take some action here to either unwind the Chinese investment or put in place some mitigation or take other measures. Um, you you sort of lose control of it, obviously, and that is the thing that nobody wants because then um, you are at the mercy of the U.S. government. But here, that is apparently what happened, is that the U.S. Invest investors resorted to taking the matter to CFIUS to stop the Chinese investors from absconding, if you believe their version of it, with their tech. Now, there are some, there, there, this, is, this matter is the subject of, I think it looks like multiple lawsuits at the moment between the, the various investors. And the, the, for their part, the Chinese investors claim that this is all just a, a cash grab on the part of the U.S. investors and that they have sort of ginned up this uh you know claim that the 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 technology and that the air the airplane um that is the central sort of product of this uh company is in fact um worthy of military use but let's put that aside for the moment I, the reality is it seems that the u.s investors did in fact take this matter to CFIUS in an effort to sort of stymie the efforts of the Chinese investors to uh, run off with their technology, there, the, to my knowledge, and this this example is is cited in the um, in the article. You know, we're at some somewhat of a disadvantage because obviously most CFIUS matters never get aired publicly and remain completely confidential. And it is it is unusual that the parties are talking so openly about what is going on behind the scenes, as a matter is being reviewed by CFIUS. There is the um, Broadcom Qualcomm matter from a few years ago, where Qualcomm, in a, in a bid to stop a hostile takeover, did employ similar measures 
to get CFIUS to intervene. And in fact, President Trump did in fact prohibit that transaction and stop it from happening. Um, but there are not too many instances that I'm aware of from my time working with the committee to my time advising on these things in private practice where the US side will say, we're gonna tattle on you Chinese investors or foreign investors, and we're gonna go to CFIUS and get them to step in and save us or help us here. So um, the question is just sort of, <laughs> What do you make of this? And do we think this foretells a new era in uh, the way that CFIUS may be um, brought in to perhaps, um, you know, buy again, sort of disgruntled U.S. investors to protect themselves when they feel that they are vulnerable? Again, with a grain of salt, because we we understand that there could be some other motives at play here for the U.S. investors. But still, what do you what do you make of all this? So, so I think to start out, I mean, I, I, I don't have any of the real factual information, right. just what we read in Correct. the press. So I think most of what I'm going to say is going to be kind of couched in hypotheticals because we don't know what's really going on we, here. But there's a lot of speculate though. So there's no bar to that. You know, <laughs> the speculation is the most fun yeah. part. But the, but, but, but. The thing is, is that I just want to be careful to yeah. say I'm not. I don't know what's going on there. I'm not trying Correct. to say that any of these, these things are going on there. But but the fact pattern and an article just raises a host of really interesting issues about CFIUS and kind of where we are today. So on the one hand, I think that the the, the set of facts as laid out by the U.S. investors at least now is kind of the the reason that FIRMA was passed. Right? We've got Chinese investors. Through their investment, they get enough of a, a, a control interest in the com company that they can start to steal U.S. technology and take it back to China. I mean, that's what the U that's what the complaint to Cipheus suggests is happening, at least from the U.S. side. And obviously, that's why Firma's there, and that's why Cipheus is there. And you know, they're going to make sure that that doesn't happen through you know that the Chinese can't use investment to take te technology out of the U.S. On the other hand, it, and this is kind of like the the CFIUS matrix at this point. I mean, the U.S. investors, uh, it, it, it's one thing to give kind of the U.S. government power in these sorts of transactions to really stop a national security harm. But at least, you know, according to some of the allegations, if, if what's really happening is that the U.S. investors are sitting there thinking, okay, well, if you pay me enough, I'd be happy to, you know, buy me out and I'll walk away and nobody will know the, the, the better for this, because it is commercial technology that's being sold to the public in the U.S., and so presumably, like, it, it probably can't be that highly controlled, although, you know, the planes look like they potentially could have some interesting military uses if you, you look at them closely, so who knows? But I'm just saying, like, it could be for real that this is not a national security concern, but because of the way firm is set up now, the U.S., you've created a, a real ch bargaining chip for minority U.S. investors or even, you know, majority U.S. investors because of some of the investment provisions of, of CFIUS to really be able to go out and, and say, you know, pay me more or we're going to put this in front of CFIUS and the investment that you've got now might get unwound or you're going to be subject to all sorts of onerous conditions in your investment. Um, so you can pay me now and I'll take the money or you can go through the whole CFIUS process, which is it going to be? And it creates this real leverage that the U.S. investors didn't have before, which I don't think was the purpose of Firma. I don't think that was the, the point was to make sure that, you know, um, the U.S. could get a better bargain for selling away potential, you know, national security threats. It, it was really to stop those if they were real, but to, to figure out, you know, 
not not to to stop the fake ones in order to get the U.S. sellers. More right. Money. Well, to the point you made about whether or not this the 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 plane that's manufactured by this company is in fact could be adapted for military uses. I think hopefully and presumably because DOD sits on Cepheus, they're and they're they're purported to be looking or working on a project with this company. They will be able to clarify that and. The committee will be clear-eyed about whether that is or is not the case, because uh, that they will have the authorities on that right there to weigh in on that. So presumably that is something that will get sorted out within the committee as they're looking at this, and we don't have any basis to know one way or the other based on the reporting. But but the the other point that uh, you bring up is a good one, and obviously the way this is the way the timeline is laid out in the article, at least the investment that was that was initially uh, that was initially accepted from the Chinese investors, it seems started certainly pre-Firma. And over time, it sounds like the main Chinese investor accrued greater and greater interest and greater and greater control. And so, you know, now in a post-Firma world, I question whether that would really be able to happen kind of, you know, outside of the prying eyes of Cepheus or anyway, right? We're, we're sort of in a, it's a little bit of an interesting uh, scenario here because it seems like, again, if, if I'm understanding the timeline from the from the reporting, that that was all in a pre-firmer world. Then we kind of ended up in this post-firmer world. To Tim's point, there's a there's general understanding and acknowledgement that the U.S. government's going to be very interested to sort of look into something like this if these types of allegations are being brought to them or made. And so they're happy to, CFIUS is happy to open a review or, or uh, request um, a notice from these parties because this kind of seems to be core to what exactly Tim said that firm is designed to protect against. So whether the whatever the ulterior motives are on either side, very hard to know and we're not trying to weigh in on that. But but I do think that it's just a it's just kind of a fascinating setup. And so we'll be interesting to see because I presume given the lawsuits and given the fact that these parties seem to have no problem sort of speaking publicly about all of this and kind of sniping at one another through the news media, we will be able to kind of keep an eye on this one and sort of see where it lands. No, again, no pun intended, um, it, with uh, final disposition from CFIUS and or some kind of, a, a, you know, agreement that gets reached to, to resolve all of this. So, um, so yeah, just one that we really wanted to flag because again, I think it kind of comes on the heels of some other issues that we were talking about last time today with respect to, again, tech transfers, China, and, and sort of the various tools that are now at the U.S. government's disposal to deal with these things. And this is sort of a fascinating one, especially with the way that it kind of got routed and how it got initiated and what may come of it. Yeah, I mean, it, it will be interesting to watch. I mean, this is kind of a real um, dichotomy, right? On the one hand, from one perspective, if you look at it one way, it's a, a threat to a core national interest that the U.S. investors were at least there to try and protect against um, before it got too late. On the other hand, you know, if you look at it from another way, it's a it's CFIUS being used to shake down Chinese investors. And and I guess we'll find out what the, the truth is at some point, or maybe we won't because CFIUS is so secret. But what I'll be really interested to see is whether or not this becomes kind of a trend, whether it becomes a fad where essentially the U.S., um, companies know that if they've got Chinese investors, they've got them over a barrel because of CFIUS. And so they can either kind of um, get them to do what they want, or they can go run, tell CFIUS. And, and, and it'll be interesting to see how CFIUS responds to that. I mean, I, I doubt that what it really wants is to be used as a tool for a shakedown. On the other hand, um, 
there do seem to be some potential national security issues in here where they could be interested. Speaking in. of shakedown, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that I've seen some reporting recently that CFIUS is now once again engaging on the TikTok issue to, to determine what may come of that, because that has kind of gone into a bit of a limbo state since uh, President Biden took office. And as all of our loyal listeners will recall, one of our most um, cherished and amusing facts that we discussed multiple times in uh, 2020 was the idea that President Trump declared that there would have to be a sizable payment made uh, in order for TikTok to continue to operate. Um, so, <laughs> so it, it, you know, apropos of that, I think we will we will uh, speaking of shakedowns, I think that's a good place to end when it comes to Cepheus and China. Um, so that's. That is our show for today. Uh, that is relatively brisk by our standards, although not quite lightning round uh, style altogether. But um, but but that is that is it for today. This will be up at uh, some point next week, so middle of February, and then we will likely uh, not be back until the very end of the month uh, with our with our next episode. In which in which case the, the the entire global world order may have been remade in the in the interim so we will likely have a lot more to say about all the topics that we talked about today and and recently uh on the next on the next go round so maybe maybe we won't just be speculating on the next episode yeah maybe not maybe that would be that would be nice for change if we had some concrete things to uh, respond to rather than just uh, speculation. Although we do like to speculate as, as, as folks know. So with that, uh, we will uh, say goodbye. We'll wrap up for this time. So thanks to everybody. Stay well, stay safe and stay sanctions free. Stay warm, stay sanctions free. Thanks everyone. Thanks everybody. Bye.